I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Hi, I'm Dave Isay, founder of StoryCorps. This message comes from NPR sponsor Subaru, the largest corporate supporter of adoptaclassroom.org by providing teachers with funding for supplies and resources. Subaru, more than a car company. All season, we've been hearing about pivotal moments in people's lives. That one thing that changed everything. For our last episode of the season, we'll meet twin brothers Marvin and Melvin Morgan. They've really got two moments that set their course. The first happened back in 1954, on the day they were born. Mama called Daddy and told him to find two names because he had two twin sons. On his way to the hospital, he saw Marvin and Melvin funeral home. He said, I got the two names. I remember that. <laughs> the next one came 12 years later, while they were visiting a family in North Carolina. So my mom went to go live with great-grandmom's grave. Never forget that. We were walking past the cemetery, and our cousin, he pointed out and said, she's over there Remember somewhere. She's over there somewhere. Down south, the African-Americans' cemeteries, separate from the Caucasian cemeteries. They were buried in my graves. No headstone, no nothing. I was really disturbed behind that. I said that one day they were going to see that people be buried right The Morgan brothers kept that promise. They both became morticians. What do we do with our time on Earth? If we're lucky enough, some of us find a calling, something we feel like we're meant to do. For Melvin and Marvin, death became their life. And it also gave them a role in history. It's the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. I'm Camila Kashani. Before we dive back in, you should know this episode has some pretty graphic descriptions of death and a mention of suicide. After that visit to the graveyard, Melvin and Marvin went back home to New York City. But the memory of that day stayed with them and they started doing something a little outside of the norm for kids their age. They started hanging around in funeral parlors. You know, we were scared in the beginning, but it was curiosity. And I remember the first body, and the kid was no more than, what, 9 or 10 years old? Hey, he looked like a doll baby. And that's the first time we ever saw a dead body. That's when we first knew what death was. I remember one time I walked into a coffin, and I was there by myself. And as I was walking up, I could have sworn I saw the lady move. So I went up on her, right? You know, took my hand, started shaking her, her chin <laughs> to see what she wake up. I never told nobody that. Eventually, Melvin and Marvin started doing chores, like changing the flowers, setting up the chairs, and taking out the trash. They dreamt about opening their own funeral parlor one day. But their plans were interrupted by the Vietnam War. When the brothers were 18, they were drafted and sent overseas. When they got back to the States, they entered the workforce. Which one? You name it. 
They worked as a bartender at Burger King for the post office at a VA hospital, even in the restaurant at the very top of the World Trade Center. But they never lost their fascination with the dead. Every time Marvin passed a funeral parlor, and if the doors were open, he'd walk through to give his blessing. In August of 1999, he was in his 40s, and opportunity knocked. He was working at a hospital in Queens, New York. I got lucky. He was a young lady down in the finance department. I was working for the human resource. She came to my office, told me that there was an opening down at the morgue. So I went to my director and asked him, I'd like to have a transfer. And they said that they're going to be a, you know, a decrease in salary if you take that position. And I explained to my director that it's something I wanted to do. Marvin started training to become a mortuary technician for the chief examiner's office, which meant he'd be picking up bodies, traveling to crime scenes, assisting with autopsies, and then preparing bodies for burial or cremation. The first day, I get to the house call and the decomposed body, and the smell is there. It's like a horror movie. And I'm telling myself, can I do this job? So when I got back to the morgue, I wanted to quit. I really did. The next day, they put me in the, the autopsy room. And all the tables was full and the bodies was open. So they asked me uh, to own up their intestines. And I was the second day on the job. And I told myself then, I said, yep, this is my last day. But Marvin kept going. A couple years later, Melvin would follow his brother into the field, working at a different morgue at another New York hospital. Here's Melvin. It was a heck of an experience to see my comrades cutting up a body with ease and not being frightened, which I was in the beginning. They just showed me around and seeing uh, Tossie being performed, never knew how the inside of a body the organs looked like. I didn't know where the heart was. These scenes, how the body looks, makes me think how this person lived their life. It makes me think what caused this person to die. When I opened up the body bag, that surprise will come to me. The form bodies, jumpers, like I saw one with the head down here and the leg up here. And when I see that, it just comes to me I knew that I had an important job to do. The fear disappears. We have viewings where family members come down to mourn their loved ones, and we quietly speak with them. I get emotional, you know, to see them going through that sorrow. I pull myself together and and act as though that everything is all right. And the the one thing you you would say, you know, don't worry, the person's in a a better place. Sometimes you can say that. Every time a body came through the doors, Melvin and Marvin were there. But some days have stayed with them more than others like one Tuesday in September of 2001. My neighbor knocked on the door and told us to turn on TV that the World Trade Center was on fire. So we got up to the roof, and then as we was looking, we saw one building go down. So I ran downstairs and called my job and asked to come in. 
After the break, Marvin and Melvin play their role in history. Stay with us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Dignity Memorial. When we think about the people we love, it's not the big things we miss the most, it's the details. What memories will your loved ones cherish when you're gone? With Dignity Memorial, you can pre-plan your celebration of life now to protect your loved ones, because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Planning truly is one of the best gifts you can give your family. For additional information, visit DignityMemorial.com. As a mortician for the city, part of Marvin's job was to be at Ground Zero. He was there 12 hours a day for 10 months. I was one of the first down there and the last to leave. Everybody down there worked together. You had the Army, the police department, you had the fire department. It was like everybody was like family down there. And every time when they found a deceased, the whole grounds would stop. Next thing I know, they told everybody to stand at attention. And then as I was coming out with the body, you had the firemen, the police department, you had the people that works there, everybody, they started saluting. When somebody right. passed away in the military, they would pay taps. Right. It was really something. And it was a many, many, many taps. New York City has been the grounds for some of the most heartbreaking moments of the 21st century. They work through every major event in the most iconic city in the world, at least every event that included death. And then COVID hit. We was at the apex center of this pandemic. Normally we have six or seven bodies in the morgue. But then came to 10, and after that went out to 20. And between... March 15th and April 1st, and within no two weeks period, it grew to 40 bodies a day. You know, bodies coming from the elevator all the way down the corridor to the hallway to the morgue, lined up. It was hard, especially with the ones that you knew. I had friends that died right there, co-workers, the people that work in the hospital, and they all of them went to the freezer. And I used to play music for them inside the morgue where I'd not be talking to them and things of that sort. Don't think I'm crazy now. One of the girls, I said, you know, your kids are going to be all right. I'll make sure uh, they're going to be taken care of. You know, my man, Derek, I said, don't worry about it, Derek. Your wife is going to be all right. You know, you know we're going to take care of your son. I'll be saying all the stuff like that. We have their pictures on the memorial uh, section of the wall. And every time I see those pictures, you know, it, it, uh, uh, a teardrop. It will always bother me to the day I die. Always. Mm-hmm. 
You might be wondering how anyone could keep doing this job. Marvin and Melvin have asked themselves that same question. Some of these cases, you know, you take it home and it, it sits with you. You know, there's a lot of cases that sits with me to the day. I would go home and I would sit down for like 10 or 15 minutes in silence, you know, to get my thoughts together, to get myself together. I'll tell you what kept me going. I would talk to you and you would talk it out with me so I can get over it. And vice versa. Right. The same that you do with me. All the time we discuss each other's problems and we, we solve those problems together. Marvin, if it wasn't for you, I don't know where I'd be at right now. And to be honest with you, it's something happened to my twin brother. Even though I do this job, I don't know if I'd be able to take it. You know? That's why I want to go out first. <laughs> How has this work made you look at life differently? Before I started, life didn't mean that much to me. It caused me to appreciate life more, to live longer. After experiencing all these deaths, that would cause me to think more about enjoying life before I go. The brothers have given more than 60 years of combined service to New York City. Marvin retired in 2022, and Melvin's last day in the job was just a month before this podcast was released. So how do you feel about retiring, Melvin? I feel good. We're going to have a good time in retirement, Marvin. We are. We had a heck of a life together. Ups and downs. And the sideways. I would never trade anybody. Yeah, I'm about to say the same thing. I would that. never trade nobody. Yeah. In the place of you. Yeah, you're my best friend. Always be. You know, this young lady asked me the other day. She asked me about death. She said, well, am I going to heaven? <laughs> I said, I don't know. No one can't tell you where you came from. No one can't tell you why you're here. And no one sure can't tell you where you're going. I don't know who God is, but I know we was put here for a reason. What that reason is, is up to you to define it. I don't have too much time left on this earth. I think about how I'm going to go out, which way I'm going to go out. Yeah. And I just hope I go out the right way. Marvin and Melvin now live together in the same apartment in Queens, New York. Next month, they're planning a trip back to their family home in Gastonia, North Carolina. They hope to go back and find their great-grandmother's burial site and leave a marker for her resting place. That's all for this episode and this season of the StoryCorps podcast. It was produced by Eleanor Vasily, who's our senior producer, and edited by Jasmine Morris. Our associate producer is Max Youngrice. Our technical director is Jared Floyd. Erica Anderson is our fact checker. Michael Garofalo is our executive producer. Special thanks to Bella Gonzalez and Mitra Bonshahi. To see what music we use in the episode, go to storycore.org, where you can also check out original artwork by Lynn Lucia. We'll be back in the fall with the 20th anniversary special series celebrating two decades of stories from everyday people. For the StoryCorps Podcast, I'm Camila Kashani.
Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity. It tells you there is more to uncover. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism. Immersive and intimate stories. I was stone-cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I I just started doing research. uh, But the truth is, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.